A Hero of the New Space Age, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The first SpaceX Dragon mission reached the International Space Station just 10 years ago. It may already be hard to believe that many in aerospace, in Congress, and even in NASA itself, tried to keep it and missions like it from happening. Lori Garver led the fight for commercial space transportation from inside the space agency. Now she's written a terrific book about those years of struggle and much more. She'll join us in minutes to talk about escaping gravity. Later you'll have the chance to win a copy when Bruce Betts arrives for What's Up? There are images of our solar system that look way too good to be real. A great example is at the top of the July 1st edition of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter. We can thank the Cassini Orbiter and the team for this nearly edge-on shot of rings and four of Saturn's moons. Scroll a bit further down for a stunning photo of Mercury snapped by the European Space Agency's Bepi Colombo as it whizzed past two weeks ago, Not every downlink image is entirely real. Check out Uranus and its rings resting comfortably in an earthly patio. Planetary Society member Christian Scheck created this striking composition. All this and more are at planetary.org slash downlink. SpaceX Dragon capsules have completed more than 20 cargo missions to and from the International Space Station. The Crew Dragon variant has made seven flights with people on board, with many more to come. Northrop Grumman's Cygnus spacecraft has visited 17 times. Waiting in the wings is Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser space plane, while Blue Origin's Big New Glen is in development. Several other companies, including Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbit, and Rocket Lab, have had impressive successes. Yet only one of these companies has existed for over 20 years. It's not just advanced technology that has enabled the newbies to find their place among the older Goliaths of aerospace. Beginning in the late 2000s, these innovators and visionaries were supported by a small group of insurgents within NASA that dared to buck the establishment. They were led by our guest this week, former NASA Deputy Administrator Lori Garver, has now documented the fight for new space and much more in her new book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. The result has been dramatically cheaper access to orbit that is now reaching out to our moon and beyond. Lori Garver, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is such a pleasure always to talk to you and to congratulate you this time on the publication of this absolutely terrific and very important book. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. It is always a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate that. You know, I rarely know when I'm going to uh, title an episode of Planetary Radio till shortly before it's published, but I, I knew what to call this one when I was only a few pages into the book. It's going to be called Lori Garver, Hero of the New Space Age. Not a gram of irony in there. Wow, that is uh, something to live up to. I appreciate it. I don't always feel like a hero, but I'm glad this is on a good path. 
you have set us on that path. You and a lot of other people, some of those people may come up in the conversation that uh, that is about to follow. We're speaking several days before this conversation will uh, be available to the audience. NASA put out a press release just in the last hour, and it's about Artemis One, that big space launch system rocket with the Orion capsule up on top, saying, well, here's the line, NASA has reviewed the data from the rehearsal and determined the testing campaign is complete. That didn't take long, did it? Just a few decades. (laughs) Well, sure. The testing program was robust, and I think that we're all very hopeful that it is, in fact, complete. So your book, which is largely about the development of this gigantic government rocket in uh, both of its incarnations, it's going to come up. And it's also about the alternative that you and that group that you titled the Space Pirates were pushing for on a parallel track. I want to take you back to where you, you pretty much opened the book. That was an event that we both attended. I was working at the 2012 uh, Planet Fest celebration of the Landing of Curiosity as we all waited for it to be cranked down onto the surface of Mars. You were an honored guest and speaker invited by Bill Nye to talk about your late friend, Sally Ride. I had no idea why you were whisked away by security personnel. What was going on? Ah, yes. This is in the prologue, not really in the order of the book, nor um, did I anticipate putting it so early, but the publisher wanted to pull forward an exciting story to kick off, and this is what they selected. So, you know, I like that in that it's really important to keep in mind these big, important, audacious things that NASA does successfully, and the Mars Science Laboratory and Curiosity was one of them. I also love that it included the Planetary Society, actually, and Bill Nye, not to mention Sally Ride. Um, It was an honor of my life to, it's even hard for me to say I knew Carl Sagan. I was in meetings with him um, and events and, of course, talked to him toward the end of his life. But really, I chose his quote to open the book from Pale Blue Dot because he was uh, so profoundly inspiring to so many of us. But the story you're referring to and why I When I got off the stage at that event, I was whisked away. I didn't know at the time there had been a security threat, at least NASA felt there had been, back at headquarters in Washington, D.C. And it was unknown, I guess, whether or not they thought there there was a bigger threat that also caused me to need to be protected out in Pasadena. But I was taken by a security guard to a private room. As I called to find out what was happening, it had been just an envelope addressed to me at NASA headquarters, an envelope with a white powdery substance in it with a threatening enough message that the person who opened the envelope was was um, put in quarantine. Oh. And when I talked to security, they were still in quarantine and testing the substance. It really did not take long. And I don't want to make too much of this. It was fake, of course. Lots of people were receiving things like that in those days, frankly. Um, but it was a little disheartening, of course. And and um, I put it in juxtaposition 
to the seven minutes of terror we all felt on the um, re the entry. I always forget it's not a re-entry. We didn't launch from Mars um, of the Mars Curiosity rover because really that's the whole point for me is like these things were personal risks, but they were worth it. They were worth it because we are all in the space community, you know, really pursuing a larger cause. And I think that's the perspective that I wanted to bring to the book. So that story being forward is we do individual things because um, they're important. And that was why I did what I did. I don't want to minimize this. This was pretty dramatic. I mean, that that white powder had your name on it. And maybe it was the most dramatic example, but it was just one example of the awful and sometimes frightening activity that was focused on you back then. Some of it anonymously, some of it coming from well-known, respected individuals, including Apollo moonwalkers. And yet, not to coin a phrase, still you persisted. Uh, why did you take on the daunting challenge that, that we'll be talking about? Uh, many of these encountered when you were the second in command, the deputy administrator of NASA. Sure. I really did um, feel, and I try to say this in the book, the bigger picture was worth any sort of personal sacrifice or setback because I truly believe we are moving out into space for reasons that benefit us all. But I'm going to just also acknowledge that in the day to day, it did become something like to prove I, I knew I was right. And the reason I knew I was right is I had already been involved for 20, 25 years. The space pirates, as you said, are these people who are very smart and had been pursuing reducing the cost of space transportation so that we could do more valuable things in space and go out in a sustained way. NASA had been trying for decades to do this, but it's not that they didn't want to. It's that the system set up has the incentives completely backwards to reducing the cost. If you're contracting with a company that has shareholders that needs to show a return on their investment, and they're going to get paid more and more the longer they take, that's what you're going to get. So I really don't like being as critical as I know some like to make me for clickbait because this is all understandable. And as you said, the point of the book is to show what we need to overcome. And it's up to the government to change those incentives. And I was in the government. I never thought I would have a role like I did. And so I think getting there is like, holy crap, I got to do something meaningful. I, I say, you know, I had the responsibility, in my view, I wasn't going to go there and just lie to the president and say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. You know, we wanted to really dig in and make sure we return the best, most valuable space program to the taxpayer. And I was lucky to work for a president. That's really what he wanted to do. I had uh, Lindy Elkins Tanton of uh, Arizona State University on the show a few weeks ago. This faced a lot of challenges in her life as well. She said something interesting, and I, I just wonder if it also speaks to you, that uh, it's so much easier to face a lot of hardships, personal and otherwise, when you know that you are working toward a goal that is so much bigger than, to quote the movie Casablanca, uh, the little hill of beans that uh, our personal problems amount to. 100%. Uh, that is what keeps you going. 
Um, not worth fighting about little things. As I say in this, uh, this was no small work. I let a lot of things go, in fact, <laughs> that I could have thought about. Um, but this is where I chose to bend my pick because I had learned, uh, Dan Golden called it, the, the head of NASA in the 90s, untying the Gordian knot, reducing the cost, increasing the reliability of space access was that holy grail. And this was the very best way we needed to go about doing it to give our chance, our best chance to make it. Now, of course, we needed lots of other things to come together and SpaceX being the most important one, really, since uh, that is who has made it successful to this point. So I don't want to minimize others' contributions. I just happened to be in a position at a time when somebody needed to stand up to the constituencies that were incentivized to keep doing what we were doing. Here is a line that addresses that. It's from roughly the middle of the book. It could just about the th be the theme of this memoir, I think. You said, escaping the trappings of power has proven harder than escaping gravity. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a great one. I had no idea what we were going to pick out. And it's also interesting because this book was titled a couple of things earlier. When I started, I was calling it Bureaucrats and Billionaires, The Race to Save NASA. Then the publisher titled it Space Pirates because their first read, they saw that as being something. But ultimately, through, I think, focus groups and things, they said, well, this is a more serious story than, than the Space Pirates title evokes. Yeah. And I came up with Escaping Gravity. I think they had Breaking Boundaries or something like that. Yeah, no, no. Um, and so I got to take another look. And as I'm not a writer, but a book is so important once it's out there, you know, it's going to remain out there. I was thrilled to have another whole take to go through it and work in the escaping gra gravity metaphor. And so this was one of the things like really meant a lot to me is the gravity of our situation was as much my job escaping as um, the earth's gravity. And then also the fact that escaping gravity in the early days, you know, it was so difficult still is yeah. but we only get there by having this, aligned vision and a consistent thing to overcome. And the reason we haven't escaped our, you know, political differences and so forth is be because it's not a constant. It moves all the time. People are human and we aren't um, exactly the same each time. So the trappings of politics continue to be harder to escape. I got to give you, before we go back to way back in your story, just one more example of the pressure you faced at the time. And it was congressional. Uh, this is a quote from, and it's in the book, from uh, then Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson of uh, Texas, uh, warning about the danger of the commercial crew initiative that you largely conceived and championed with a largely resistant NASA. Here's the quote. Congress must examine closely the very underpinnings of the proposed NASA budget request, which I believe, if accepted and supported by the Congress in its present form, would spell the end of our nation's leadership in space exploration. That would certainly be the case in the area of human spaceflight capability, unquote. 
Lori, if it was your fiendish plot to destroy NASA and the United States leadership in space exploration, you could not have failed more completely. <laughs> True enough. I think, you know, as as to my motivations about this, it is it, it was very hurtful having intended my whole career to help advance space development to be charged with trying to kill it by a couple people. She was one of them, Senator Shelby, another. That was so not my intent. The things that she and the other members were promoting, again, the incentives are for her to keep jobs that are in her district. That's that's fair enough. But we really had held back the space program by doing these cost plus contracts. So you could argue, you know, I that she was on the other foot. But to close this circle, she shows up at Senator Nelson's confirmation hearing to be head of NASA. And she and uh, Senator, now Administrator Nelson, wrapped themselves in the commercial flag. They said they, they started it, it turns out. <laughs> oh, speaking of irony. Commercial crew is a really good example of how you can make positive change in government, how you can break the self-feeding cycle. And there are a number of things when you just keep your focus on the end state. And that's another Dan Golden trait, very strategic thinker. And NASA tends to be filled with process thinkers. Understandably, you can't get off the planet without following very specific processes for launching rockets and having successful spacecraft. But the uh, one chapter is named, it's not just rocket science, because political science, as long as we're spending the public's money, is something that we have to follow as well. And breaking that cycle is what we were able to do with, with both commercial cargo and crew to allow the private sector to innovate, lower costs, bring in new markets, help our economy, our national security, and now open up space to more people and activities. You accomplish the goal. There's no turning back. There's no way to put the commercial space genie back in the bottle now. And so I thank you. Well, it really was a an honor, a true honor. You know, growing up like I did wanting to do public service, I couldn't have imagined having this opportunity and it, and it was for the most part a pleasure as well. Fun to write the book, fun to talk to you about it. Thanks so much. Lori Garver is a former deputy administrator at NASA. Her new book is Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. It's published by Diversion. Every minute of my entire hour-long conversation with Lori is fascinating, and you can hear it all at planetary.org radio or from your favorite podcast provider. Bruce Betts is coming right up. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? 
We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's that chief scientist of the Planetary Society. We are joined yet again by Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Good to be back. Nice to see you. We got nice comments from a number of listeners about that wonderful alignment in the sky. Oh, good. Told us so much about Candace Miller. I saw the planet alignment this morning from Garden City uh, Beach in South Carolina. It was so amazing. Laura Dodd, Northern California, happy midsummer. When the pre-dawn sky is clear up here on Humboldt Bay, I enjoy a peek at the string of planets. Thanks for the what's up. Heads up, Bruce. Hey, you're welcome. That lineup is still there, although Mercury Mercury's pretty dicey. Mercury's dropping lower. In the, we're talking pre-dawn east. If you have a reasonably clear view to the eastern horizon, you should see super bright Venus. And above that, reddish Mars. Above that, bright Jupiter. And above that, yellow Saturn. And they're just going to keep spreading out across the sky. Venus will stick low and the others will move across the sky over time. But you can just go from one to the next and uh, collect them all. Uh, for the evening sky, because I've just felt like it's so left out recently, all month you can see the bright reddish star Antares, the red supergiant within the constellation Scorpius in the south in the evening. On July 10th, the moon will be nearby. If you're one of our Southern Hemisphere listeners, you can still see it, but you'll be looking high in the east. It'll be really high overhead, Scorpius and Antares getting higher as the evening goes along. We move on to this week in space history. It was this week in 1979, two significant things happened. Voyager 2 flew past Jupiter and returned lots of groovy data. And Skylab fell from the sky. Skylab re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, creating a craze, uh, as we've discussed before on this show, but it did not, uh, it, it splattered across part of Australia. And in 2011, it's already somehow been 11 years since the last space shuttle launch, STS-135. We move on to random space. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about country flags, of course. I'm sure that's why you tune into this show. On the Brazil, Brazil's flag, each of the 27 stars on the flag actually represents a specific Brazilian state or federal district, but each of them also represents a specific star in the sky. Uh, The stars are of different sizes and are arranged to correspond to constellations visible in the Southern Hemisphere. Here's a weird one. They are mirror-flipped compared to what you would see on Earth, at least uh, the full constellations like the Southern Cross because it's imagined as old-timey philosophy that all the stars are on a sphere. What if you were outside that sphere looking down at Rio de Janeiro on the date of uh, Brazilian independence, November 15th, 1889? That is just marvelous. I absolutely (laughs) love that. I didn't know any of that stuff. We will come back to that just to tease you. We move on to the trivia contest, and I asked you, how many torque rods, also known as magneto-torquers, does Lightsail 2 have? How'd we do, Matt? 
Got a big response this time. We have completely bounced back from the uh, early summer doldrums and uh, got some very entertaining stuff as well. Here's the response we got from Jerry Robinette in Ohio. Jerry, I'm sorry, you're not the winner, but hey, this is a pretty good consolation prize. You get mentioned up front. Lightsail 2 has three torque rods, although I prefer magneto torquers because why settle for two syllables when you can get the same word done with five? I'm, <laughs> I'm no ma- magneto torque engineer, but I believe that is one for each axis. That is correct. There are three of these torque rods, which are basically like electromagnets, and they're oriented to produce magnetic fields in three perpendicular or as They reinvent the word perpendicular later in math in three orthogonal axes, which just means the same thing. That's used so that the system with the right software behind it can work those magnetic fields against the Earth's magnetic field, which you also need to know where you are, so what the which direction of the field, so you can take things like spin out of the sail that you don't want. Nice explanation there. Hey, here's that winner that I promised. He's only won once before, and this is what's unique. That last win was 10 years ago, as far as I can tell. Yikes. Ben, Ben Owens, thanks for hanging in there from Australia. We congratulate you. And here's what Ben had to say. We were giving away, we are giving away, that great book by, uh, who's this the guy? Bruce Betts, by Bruce Betts, The Solar System Reference for Teens. Wait, that's me. <laughs> Sorry, that is I. Ben, who I guess is not a teenager anymore, although we have assured people, and I can attest to this, that the book is for uh, much more than teens. He said, hey, oh, Matt, should the planets align, get it, for me, and I win, pick a worthy school and donate the book to their library. Cheers. Oh, that's nice. Well, talk about great timing. I mean, this is this is absolutely cosmic. We got an entry from Rebecca Dobreen in Texas. Here's her message. Hello, Matt and Dr. Betts. I am a new science teacher for fourth grade and have been listening for a while, but have never entered and only recently became a member. Thank you, Rebecca. I would love a copy of this for my classroom. <laughs> Keep up the good content. My it is goodness. destiny. I know. It's just a match made in heaven. So, uh, hey, Rebecca, we're going to send you the book uh, with Ben's compliments. And Ben, compliments to you as well. Isn't that great? That is great. And finally, this from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. In space, you will need to have torquers to work on your sail control, a trio for each body axis to handle the yaw, pitch, and roll. They work with the magic of magnets, their quality you can deduce, because they're controlled by the master, the chief scientist known as Bruce. (laughs) I knew you'd like that. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Of course. It ended in Bruce. Of course I loved it. Right. Shameless. All right. We're ready for another. Well, back to flags, of course, and Brazil's flag. One star of the 27 stars is shown above a white band, the white band crossing the center of the flag. What star and what Brazilian state does it represent? What star in the sky and what Brazilian state does the one star above the white band represent? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 13th. 
That would be uh, July 13, Wednesday, July 13, at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And somebody is going to win Escaping Gravity, my quest to transform NASA and launch a new space age by our guest today, of course, Lori Garver, the uh, former deputy administrator of NASA. Get those uh, entries in. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think if you were going to make a flag for your house, what would be on that flag? Stars? Kangaroos? Squid? Thank you, and good night. I would put on that flag my dog, Dennis. He oh, nice. so good on a flag with his little flop ear. He's just <laughs> the cutest little guy. And I would, I would proudly salute that flag as I salute the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. <laughs> That's Dr. <laughs> Hail Dennis. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its stubbornly visionary members. Marco Verda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.